Helicopter Homer, away! Black Hawk Down! Black Hawk Down! You're listening to the podcast, So There I Was. This is episode 29 with GT. That was a fun interview, I think. It was a fun interview, and it seems weird to say the number 29. Right. How how did we get to 29 so fast? It's it's awesome. Boy, is it fun. And I hope you guys are having as much fun listening as we are having putting this together. Yeah. GT was a fabulous interview and unique in the fact that he started out as a listener, and he sent us right. an email, and he said, hey, I've got some stories to tell. So... Uh, what a nice segue. If you are a listener and you do have stories to tell, please reach out to us. We want you to tell your stories. That's that's why we're here. And the other cool first on this one was he was our first helicopter pilot. You know, there, there's been, uh, we've, we've uh, interviewed two now, so we've got another helicopter pilot coming up afterwards. Some of them have been a little self-deprecating, and I got to say, uh, we said it during the show, we wear the same wings of gold. That's right. You do not become a naval aviator in a special category. You're a naval aviator, period. No, we all wear the no. same wings, and there's the respect that goes out to wearing those wings because we all that have them know the gold wing fairy didn't just wander by and no. hand them to us. <laughs> no, they, they, the gold wing fairy doesn't go around and just sprinkle fairy wing dust on people. You, know, you, you earn those wings. And there is no weapon, flying weapon system that's not important or difficult to fly or difficult to learn. They're all unique. And yeah. uh, we, yeah. we as jet pilots like to make fun of helicopter pilots just because uh, they're very different. And as it's us, scary. <laughs> as us being Harrier pilots, we got, we got a lot of razzing from the straight jet guys because, you know, we were right. different. Right. And so I can totally relate. And I have a soft spot in my heart for uh, helicopter guys because I, I don't want to fly one. Uh, it, 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 they scare me. Yeah, they're, they're, they're terrifying. So I'm glad someone does it because, yeah, they, they are terrifying, but they also are pretty cool. They do a good mission. But boy, if we thought we did dangerous stuff, they did dangerous stuff. In fact, oh my gosh. the title of this episode is, He Left His Boot Mark on My Face. Yeah, that's a teaser. That's a teaser. That comes right from the fact that he was in his first tour and there were four Class Alpha mishaps. Class Alpha is losing the airplane or a fatality. And there were four in his squad in his first tour, and he was one of them. And he tells us about that. So and, Yeah, that's, uh, that's horrific. Just that was, statistic all by itself right there. And he's also related some of his stories in his book, American Quest. And we normally just use call signs here, but because it's, it's a book and he's an author, his name is Wayne Tunick. You can find it on Amazon, American Quest by Wayne Tunick. And it's a good story, Fig. I just finished reading it, and it's about a young man who's in high school, wants to go to college. His scholarship falls through, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And by chance, he finds himself uh, it, it, wanting to enlist in the Navy. He does, and it talks about his career progression. And it's a cool story, particularly for anyone who's considering enlisting in the military. So, And there were some other cool things he had in his book, too. He has rules by which to live by. And they're all pretty darn good. For example, you never crash going up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's when you hit the ground. It's yeah. going down. That's the Speak bad. up. Yeah. Speak up if something's not right. Yeah. I think he said it a little more eloquently than that, but uh, I can't find fault with a uh, single one of them. As a matter of fact, I think they're all good. 
No, neither can I. And in fact, the times I've come closest to something stupid happening in airplanes is when I thought the other guy saw something and you know, right. you know he had it. I, I'm, I don't need to say anything. No, speak up. So, or you might have someone leaving their boot print on your face. At the <laughs> end, right? That's right. So strap in, no ejection handle to sit on this time because you can't eject from a helicopter, which means you got to be good all the time. You're riding it in, boys. You're riding it in. (laughs) That's right. So better make sure you do it in a controlled fashion. Enjoy episode 29. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing on that day. Now an F-16 is cramped enough, but it's even worse with all that stuff supposed to save your life. But we knew there was no way. Cause when you're going down the North Atlantic, man, it's over. Now about four hours into the flight, well, I got a little nervous cause it was still night. I'm on the wing of the tanker, man, and I got a piss. So there I was. Which is all, all great aviation stories start. Welcome to So There I Was. This is Fig, and I'm with my co-host, Repeat? That's me. Yeah. Good evening, <laughs> Fig. Good evening. And we have the pleasure tonight of welcoming with us our, our first, uh, we're going to refer to this lovingly, our first rotor head, <laughs> <laughs> our first naval aviator helicopter Welcome, pilot. GT. GT. Welcome to the show, sir. Well, your standard has improved remarkably, <laughs> automatically. So good for you guys. <laughs> there you go, right? <laughs> If you can't hover, you ain't, you know, is that how it goes? To hover yeah. is, to va- is divine. There you go. Exactly. I before. Yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. Hey, before we start, I want to uh, just quickly acknowledge today as we're recording this is the 12th of November. And earlier this afternoon, it looks like some fellow aviators may have lost their lives at the Dallas Air Show. A Bell P-63 King Cobra collided with a uh, Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress at the Wings Over Dallas Air Show at the Dallas Executive Airport. So our thoughts and our prayers go out to those aviators and their families. We we hope there are survivors. It it does not look good, but no. uh, I did want to acknowledge I, that. I saw a video. It's absolutely horrific. It's disturbing. Yeah. And uh, uh, my heart goes out to all those people. Yeah. And so if you have a weak stomach, don't go look at that video, it sounds like to me. So... GT was uh, one of our listeners and reached out to us. He is a uh, retired captain in the United States Navy and a, as I stated earlier, a helicopter pilot and the author of the book American Quest. I'd actually like to open up and ask you to talk a little bit about your book, and then we're going to back up and go, how is it you wound up uh, getting to fly airplanes and becoming interested in flying and, and all that good stuff? But if you'd open with talking about your book a little bit, please, sir, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Great. First, let me say you guys are doing a great job. I'm amazed that two Marines are able to pull this technology off. Uh, (laughs) Right? Harrier Harrier guys must be a hell of a lot smarter than the Hilo Marines that I knew, because I'll tell you what, (laughs) there's no way they would have been able to make this happen. It's it, listen. It's all repeat. Trust me. If it was left to my devices, we this thing wouldn't ever got off the ground. Hey, I might push some computer buttons, but uh, I ain't the show talent. So here we go. <laughs> so congratulations, and, Thank you. and you're doing a great, great. Thank thing. you, sir. 
Uh, and as I said, a lot of respect for you guys for flying that aircraft and being uh, a comrade in hovering. So um, my on. book, uh, American Quest, uh, I started writing it probably about 12 years ago, you know, was on and off. But essentially, it's a fiction story um, and it's based on my experiences through my time in the Navy. And uh, it focuses on a uh, young teenager growing up in uh, a uh, coal mining town in Pennsylvania. And he um, enlists in the Navy, becomes a naval air crewman and a rescue swimmer. And I don't know if you're familiar with rescue swimmers. They're pretty badass or what I what I'm what I know. Yeah, they are a, a remarkable group because they come a lot of them from tough backgrounds and they end up uh, being rescue swimmers, but they're jumping out of helicopters at night. They're highly conditioned athletes and they also run the weapon systems, radars and that. So they're smart. And, um, so this guy, I I don't know. I have to, I have to ask how smart is it to jump out of a perfectly safe helicopter at night into a training ocean, you know, (laughs) okay. It's a different kind of smart. I'll give you that. (laughs) Well, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty amazing and big stones, big stones. They, uh, they're, they're athletes, they're smart. Uh, and some of them would come and, uh, go through officer programs. When I was the commanding officer, I was able to get four guys through the seaman to admiral program. Nice. And um, they became oh, helicopter scary. pilots, some of them. And that's what the story is. Uh, the story of Sam Dean, who starts off as a teenager in a coal mining town, probably was going to end up going to be a coal miner like his dad but gets into the Navy, becomes a rescue swimmer, then becomes a helicopter pilot and ends up fighting Iranians in the Gulf. Uh, So, but all of the stories and tales in there are kind of true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. What's the, uh, what's the time frame of the book? uh, GT uh, modern times. Is it 10 years ago? It's 19, uh, 97. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that time period. So, yeah, those guys are nuts and thank God for those guys that are willing to do that. You know I mean? I kind of joke about, you know, how smart is that, but, oh, I thank God for those men and women that are willing to jump out of an airplane and and help someone in distress in the ocean. Cause there's gotta be no more lonely feeling than being in the, in the ocean waiting for someone to come get you and pick you up. Well, we talked to a couple guys that had that experience yeah. already, didn't we? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. You've had a number of those on your show. And I, yeah. one guy in particular, I had a, he was a first class petty officer in E6. And he was in my, in, in the RAG uh, squadron with me. I was the CO. And he had applied for an officer program. And then the next year, I didn't see his package. So I said to him, Hey, where's your package? And he's like, 
yeah, I didn't get it. And I'm too old for the pilot program now. And I'm not going to apply. And I'm like, oh, yes, you are. So right on. That, good for yeah, you. Get that package in. So he got it in. And lo and behold, he got selected. Nice. And right. he was too old. So they wanted him to be an NFO. And I said, no, that ain't happening. Long story short, about a thousand calls up to D.C., and they gave him a waiver and he got to the pilot program, went through training and he came back through the rag and he flew his first flight with me. So how about that? Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. And he went on to have a good career and that was the basis of it. And that's the book. Well, that's a great story. Well, thank yeah. you for that. I'm, I'm, I, I like reading books like that. Absolutely. I'm stoked. And on I, Amazon. There you go. American Quest, available on Amazon. All right. Well, I'm going to download it, and I'm going to read it, and then I'm, I'm going to give you a 4.8 star, <laughs> star review. There you go. <laughs> Amazon. Nice. All right. Thanks, man. That's awesome. I, okay. I need a new book, so that's perfect timing. There you go. So back to the question. How'd you get started flying? I really wasn't focused on flying. I grew up in New York uh, on Long Island. I went to upstate New York to Union College, and I played football up there, Division Three football. You know, was just having a good time in college. I was a uh, industrial economics major, whatever that means. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> You were li you were lineman, part engineering, part economics, but probably wasn't going to have much of uh, a job choice. Uh, I did know I didn't want to sit behind a desk though. Okay. And hey, hey, GT, you were office and offensive lineman. Is that correct in correct. college? Yeah. So, so you're not a small you're not a small human. Not well. It was division three, so I wasn't terrifically large. You know, I was. Give, give me your give me your college then. playing stats. Yeah, give me give me college playing. Uh, uh to, you know, height and weight. Six feet two twenty. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you're not a small human. No. Well, now they were, you know, now they're three hundred pounders in Division Three, but back, <laughs> well, sure. Back then, I I was actually you know probably one of the the larger you know guards yeah. anyway, not not tackle, but okay. Come about middle of my senior year, I still wasn't really figuring what I was going to do. But lo and behold, there was a demonstration of a Harrier at the Nassau Coliseum. And I was amazed by that. I, I could not believe it wasn't an air show. It was just some sort of a demo they were doing. And that thing was right over us. And it was, you know, incredible. So I decided I was going to go Marine Air. So I started that track, put in all my paperwork. And at the same time, I was interested in the Navy SEALs, put my paperwork in for that. And lo and behold, those things were tracking along not real quickly. This was 1980. And That's I got a call from the Navy recruiter and said, hey, you're qualified for Navy Air based on my scores. Do you want to go? And I'm like, well, when can I go? And he goes, I'll get you there a seat in August at AOCS. And nobody else had even 
basically come back to me at that point. I'm like, right. I'll take it. That was my entry into going into the military, into AOCS. And of course, you know, I, I wanted to fly. I wasn't going to fly Harriers. Who knew what I was going to fly? But so, so just, just to be clear, not one minute ever spent in an airplane at this point, right? No. So you went in completely cold and blind. That's what I was saying to repeat was, you know, I've, I've been listening to your podcast and it's enlightened me that I thought everybody was on a level playing field at the VTs <laughs> and we right. were all zero hours and had our heads up our butt. But here it is, you know, right. guys like you are walking in with 300 hours and oh, yeah. I'm lucky I didn't get chopped up by walking into the prop on the first flight. So, <laughs> uh, so I guess I feel better now, a little better about my grades. You sparked a, a memory. My, my roommate, uh, who ended up flying C-130s, uh, KC-130s in the Marines, he, uh, we, we had this uh, kiddie pool out in our front yard there in Milton. We lived in Milton, uh, you know, just outside Whiting Field there. We were, we were sharing a duplex and I came home from flying uh, right, right, in the, right as soon as we started flying, right in the first couple of flights. And he was sitting in a lawn chair with his feet in the pool, drinking a beer. And I could tell by his body language, he was just completely defeated. So I c kicked my boots off, stuck my feet in the water next to him, cracked a beer. And I says, what's up, bro? And he goes, he just kept yelling at me. Who? What? What are you talking about? He says, my on when you just kept screaming at me. And at one point he threw his clip, <laughs> he threw his kneeboard at me and bounced off the back of my helmet. He was screaming trim god damn it trim and he mm -hmm. goes i don't know what trim is and I'm like, <laughs> i started laughing and then i realized he had a whole yeah he, he wasn't he didn't think it was funny so i said okay okay here so he was holding a long neck beer bottle so i says okay i grabbed it i grabbed the beer bottle and i and i started pushing on the beer bottle i says this is not in trim and then i i stopped pushing and there was no pressure on the beer bottle i says this is trim and he goes Son of a bitch! Why didn't somebody <laughs> tell me that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, but it was that, right? It was just little stuff like that. Uh, oh yeah. You know, well, repeat, and I walked into this thing already kind of understanding that stuff. Yeah. Okay. On my, you know, I made it to my solo, and you know, on my solo, uh, you know, I came back to the Whiting Field, and I I was tight there was a crosswind and I was too yeah. tight on downwind and too, too close to the runway. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, you know, um, trying to get line up and I, I was all screwed up. I waved off. So second time I come around, of course I'm in the same exact spot. Why? Cause I don't know why I'm there. You know, the idea of a crosswind <laughs> right. pushing me made no sense to me. You know what I mean? No, no I yeah. wouldn't. Yeah. No. And so I was in the same spot and I waved off a second time. And I know now that the squadron FDO has been alerted and, you know, there, and I'm like, <laughs> I have to land this on. You're this under one. the microscope now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody's and, watching. And on the third one, I was in the same spot again, but darn it. Uh, I'm lucky I didn't get into approach turn stall. I, I must've had 60 degrees angle of bank on that to, to, to be able to. <laughs> To get there and, and, and i managed to land it slow and, I, and dirty overbanked oh yeah, yeah. i yeah. i sweated an angel i was soaking wet i you know drove back in and you know i get out and one of the instructors grabs me i think it was a marine guy just ripping me because i was 
he was behind me in the whiting entry channel and I was too slow. <laughs> and all I'm thinking is, man, you should have seen my landing if you think right? that was bad. <laughs> oh, so, that's awesome. Man. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I really understood what was going on, you know, uh, much until I got to the HTs and you know, everything started to kind of filter in at that point about flying and, 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 and things like that. But yeah, the, the light bulb came on then, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, yeah. everybody gets it. Everybody gets the light bulb. It's just a matter of when. And so, you know, as far as the military goes, for listeners that don't know how this tracks, you know, you, everybody starts primary together. And then when you finish, based on your grades and what the, the service uh, availability needs the of the service. Yeah. Yeah. Needs of the service. You know, they take the guys with the top grades and they give them their first choice and then so on and so forth. So, so guys like GT who, who started off with zero flight time and then the guys like repeat over here, that's got what, what you came in with 10,000 hours or something yeah, like that, like 200, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so, you know, the first 10 flights, uh, you know, for repeat and, and me, for example, cause I, I already had all my pilot license and rating and instrument rating and everything. When I started, it was the first 10 flights were just easy. Uh, and you know, uh, guys like GT are just trying to figure it out. So eventually everybody gets it. If, and if they don't get it, they shouldn't fly. And then they just get weeded out that way. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but I thought I needed yeah. to put that in there. Yeah, it was it it was definitely a challenge, but it came on in the HTs. I did well in the HTs, and then I I got to choose you know what community I wanted to go in helos, and I chose HSL, which was helicopter anti submarine light. Um, and they was that Yui back then? What's that? Yui was that Yui's in H two H two so H two okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to interrupt real quickly too on, on just a couple things. First, first of all, you talked about downwind and the pattern that sort of thing. We do have a glossary at so there I was dot us with several of the terms that we're using. If you hear a term and it's not in the glossary at so there I was dot us, drop us a line and ask us to put it in there and we will and we'll explain it. And another term you just used were the HTs, which is the helicopter training squadron, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just. Just because you guys have, you know, been focused on, you know, jets like everybody else in the universe, just to explain how a helo guy, you know, becomes one every in the Navy, you know, and the Marine Corps, everybody goes through yeah. the VTs, they go through their training. And then when I was going through, there were two helo training squadrons, HT8 and HT18 in Pensacola. And HT8 flew the TH-57, which is the Bell Jet Ranger. Right. You know, that's your kind of yep. traffic reporting helicopter that you see on TV. And you basically did FAM maneuvers and, you know, a little bit of instrument. But that, that just got taught you the basics of helicopters. And then you went to HT-18 and you flew the H-1, the Huey, uh, single engine. You know, these were Vietnam you know, uh, models that were actually flown in Vietnam, great helicopter, uh, great history, great sound of a helicopter. Yeah. yeah. Right. And about as bulletproof as a helicopter comes, right? Yeah. Hey, hey GT, was that, was HT-18 also at Whiting? Yes. Okay. Both of okay. them were at Whiting. And today there's only, you only go to one squadron and you do 
both the beginning and the the more advanced helo in the same squadron so there's not okay. two separate squadrons but in those days there was two separate ones and flying the h1 you know that that was a lot of fun and again by then you knew more and you were able to to take advantage of that and fly the h1 all right so i'm gonna ask a uh typical fixed wing guy question to a to a helicopter guy and just before i ask this question i i have to uh give you a little information i flew a helicopter for about 10 minutes when <laughs> i was in college it was a bell 90 scared the shit out of me <laughs> couldn't figure out how to make it work and and i knew right then and there it, it just not, didn't make sense to me it wasn't for me so here's my question when you transition from the VTs to the HTs, how, how long did it take you to grasp the difference in, you know, aerodynamics of a wing that's spinning over your head as opposed to a wing that's fixed and you're getting lift over the wing from a, some other propulsion? How long, like how many sorties do you think until you went, okay, I got this? I think it's actually relatively easy to get the forward flight piece of it you know because you know you got your collective which is your power you know it's kind of similar to the throttle and of course you got a stick which is the same so that's fairly easy and you know you guys probably know hovering is a whole different ball game because it's just in the it's, hover it's formation mode. flying on the ground. I mean, really? Yeah. yeah. Right. And, it's and not as easy as it looks either. <laughs> <laughs> and in the helicopter, you've got all of the axes. You've yeah. got yaw, pitch, roll up and down. And so you've got to keep all those going. And that's what I think takes the longest time for helicopter pilots to, to transition and, and get that. But once you have that down, the, the forward flight piece, I think, is a little bit easier. Well, let me ask this then. I don't know. I, I think I've got about 30 or 40 minutes of stick time, and, and it was in the Bell Jet Ranger. It was when I was in college. We went over to Pensacola and, and got a ride, and uh, the guy was doing <laughs> auto rotations to show us how that worked. We wound up ripping a skid off. <laughs> Whoops. It's like, okay, that, that day's over. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we got a ride back in a Jeep. The uh, after that they said yeah no more auto rotations for for demo flights for the for the student <laughs> candidates but you know eh, is uh, is why. hovering in a helicopter it, it, I'll I'll boil it down to this and fig you can disagree with me if you want but hovering in the Harrier was essentially learning not to touch the damn stick once once you got it trimmed oh, you yeah. know leave the stick alone uh, in the in know, the B in the B model like yeah. the one we flew it was like you said trim it up put it where you want it don't touch it yeah. If you need to make a slight adjustment, you think it that direction, but but try not to touch the stick. So was was it that way in the, in the helicopter as well? Is it learning you know not to touch things when things are going well? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, it's pretty much the biggest problem with new helicopter pilots learning is overcorrecting. You know, and then you just get into the pilot induced oscillation, and <laughs> you know you, you can't get out of it. So. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm guilty yeah. of that. That, that's, yeah. that was my problem. So if you can trim it up and, you know, use the trim and not, you know, squeeze the black juice out of the stick there in the hover, right. you know, then, 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 then that, that's good. But you know, that, that's hard to learn for, for new guys. And, and 
So that takes a while to be able to be comfortable to just trim things up and sit there. Okay. Yeah. No, that's all right. So, so VT 18, and then I'm assuming then you went to the H2 rag. Yeah. The eight, I went to the H2 HT, rag. HT 18 and then yeah. the rag. Yeah. yeah. HTs. Then I went to the H2 rag. That was in Norfolk. Uh, learned to fly the H2. And of course, the H2, uh, HSL did not deploy on carriers. Okay. We deployed on detachments, four pilots, two air crewmen, about 13 maintainers, highest oh, ranking. What's that? What kind of ships? LPD? L, uh... No, this was like destroyers, frigates, and stuff, right? yeah. frigates. Okay. Okay. Fast frigate, really small decks. Uh, yes. Bo- boats with a bunch of crap around their flight decks. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff you can yeah. hit with your rotors. And the, the flight the, the flight deck you're referring to is usually on the aft of the ship. Correct. The aft end, it's a you know, on an FFG it's thirty feet off the water. Holy shit. So you would deploy on board as the air detachment. The senior officer was an O four. The senior maintainer was usually a E seven or E eight. We were a self-contained unit. So that's a lieutenant commander and a chief. Correct. Yeah, okay. And then we would go on the ship. We did, you know, anti-submarine warfare, anti-ship warfare, search and rescue, vert rep. The H-2 was somewhat limited because of what kind of weapons it could carry. Hey, GT, define vert rep. Vertical replenishment. And that's oh, vertical you know, when- Okay, yeah. Yeah, so you brought, you brought a, the mail and the milk and... Mail, yeah, that was a big one. Everybody loved you, loved you when you were carrying mail. <laughs> right. And believe it or not, in those days, we'd also carry movies. Yeah. Real to real. Oh, that's uh, right. You guys oh, are probably no way. Too, VHS and Beta were just getting started. Yeah, you guys are probably too young for that, but... Oh yeah, it was, VH, it was VHS tapes when we were, when we were on active duty, wasn't it? Yeah, that real, 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 real is gone. So we used to, uh, you know, sometimes we would be so hurting for movies, we would get these big reels that you would play on a projector, and the chief's mess would be watching reel number two, and the officer's mess would be watching reel number one, and then we'd swap them. So (laughs) so they'd see the end of the movie, and then they'd get the beginning. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And one of the uh, officers was the movie officer. He had to figure out what was going to get. It was a whole thing. Oh, yeah. Right? That was a big deal. And then when tapes came out, that kind of went down, then down the drain. And then people were watching it on their computers. And it used to be a big deal to get movies. So, yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, and the mail, you were so old, there was no such thing as email. The, the only electronic no. Uh, no. stuff was the, the official naval message traffic. That was a big deal to have mail. I remember being at sea 45 days, and it was, you know, you, oh, letters came. Ooh. Yeah. So. Did you ever do a Mars call? Yes. Yeah, that's the HF call on the radio. I, did, I got to do one one time, yeah. You could pick up an HF operator stateside, and he would call your home number, and you would have to speak to whoever you wanted to speak to, your wife or whatever, and you'd, hello, over. Yeah, yeah. Hey, honey, you got to say over switch. when you're done, over. <laughs> right, you would have to say, tell them, 
Hello, over. I want a divorce, over. (laughs) I swear to God, I heard that one. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually done those from the C-130 before from on the other side of the world. When the when the conditions were right, you could bounce you could bounce it off, and it was it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the H two was limited in what it could do due to weapons and its computer capability, and it was also limited in its sea state because you landed on the flight deck. There was no securing device, and so your sea state was limited and. One of the most dangerous things and limitations was moving it out of the hangar because, you know, guys were pushing that out of the hangar. And if the, if the ship took a roll, I mean, it could literally flip over. So that was a tough thing. And then the follow on aircraft to that was the, the SH 60B, the Seahawk. That was a version of the Army Blackhawk. And that had many, many improvements, computers, weapons and a device to move it out of the hangar that it was locked into a little towing device and you could be hauled down with a cable in high sea state. So, so that made it a lot better. Okay. Hold on a second. Hauled down with a cable. Let's talk about that because I know what you're talking about, but let's, I want you to describe that. So in the H2, the big problem with the H2 was when you came over the flight deck in a hover and the deck was rolling and it could be rolling 20, 30, even more degrees. If you landed, you would hit the flight deck and your gear would go down on it and you would slide because it's wet and there's nothing to secure you. So the follow on to that, the, the SH-60B, in order to improve upon that, we had what they called a RAST, Recovery Assist Secure and Traverse device. And what that was, there was basically a little three feet by five foot metal trolley that was on the flight deck with a opening in it that had two jaws that closed down. And on the aircraft, there was a probe in the middle of the aircraft. And that would be, you would either land it in the jaws or you could lower a cable from the probe. Guys on the flight deck would hook a cable Gosh. from the ship, and then you would pull that into the aircraft and lock it, and then they'd pull you down at like 5,000 PSI, and you were going right into that trap, and then the, the jaws trapped on the probe, and, and that wasn't going to move anywhere. So, so you were mechanically pulled down and fastened to the deck. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, you would not believe the sense of calm that oh, that yeah. pro- provided when you were in a high sea state. Oh, I can only imagine, brother. And you were hooked up and being hauled down rather than having to try to guess how to time to land on the ship. It, it, right. It, it really was an amazing improvement. Define a high sea state. How many feet? Yeah, are you talking yeah. here? How many? How big are um, these waves? You're talking sea state four, five. I mean, it's not so much the waves; it's the rolls. Right. You know, you're talking twenty, thirty degree rolls. Easy. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so your runway is tilting in two directions, or actually maybe three. Pitching up and down, on you. rolling yeah. left, and pitching forward yeah. and aft. <laughs> By 30 degrees. Yeah. 
the pitch is sometimes more dangerous than the roll because then you're yeah. dealing with coming in, being up against the hanger. Yeah, hitting a, hitting a rotor on the hanger. Yeah, when you weren't uh, thinking of that. So, But before I wow. get to the, the 60, I will tell you that the H2, because I, I, I worked in the Pentagon and I was working actually to sundown the H2, sundown meaning a way of shutting down the community, retiring fleet. Yeah. yeah, retiring it. And when you look over the single engine models that were out there in Vietnam, it was one of the most dangerous aircraft ever in the Navy, Navy or Marine Corps. Uh, yeah. Its mishap rate was even worse than the Harrier, if you can believe that. No, I, I have a hard time believing that, but... Yeah. So I had a mishap in the H-2, my first squadron, HSL-36 in Mayport, Florida. By the time I left my first tour, three years, we had four Class A mishaps, and we had lost two pilots. So, so Class A is the total destruction of an airframe and or a fatality. Correct. You talked about, uh, I think we glanced over that too, auto, auto rotation. Would you, you you're about, well, I guess you're about to describe what auto rotation was, because I think that happened in your mishap, yeah. right? Sort of. Yeah. Was the H2, was that a single, single motor, single engine helicopter, H2? It started out as single engine. And then those were the Vietnam era ones. Clyde Lassen, uh, you may recognize that name. He won the Medal of Honor for doing a rescue uh, in Vietnam in a single engine, was all shot up. Commander Clyde Lassen, there's a destroyer named after him, but they were single engine models. Then the later model, they put two engines on it, which made it a heck of a lot safer. With my mishap, I had recently become a helicopter aircraft commander, which that is the designation for pilot in command, essentially for a helicopter. Yeah. So you have to, you have to get your hours, go through a board, have enough experience, and then you get designated an aircraft commander, and that means you can sign for the aircraft. Hey, G2, can I, can I halt you for a second and yeah. ask you one question? How many crew members are on an H2? So you have a pilot, a co-pilot, and an air crewman, and you may fly with a second with two air crewmen if you're doing a search and rescue. Okay, so three normal, maybe sometimes four. Correct. Two pilots and an air crewman or two. Right. Got it. Got and it. one of them is the aircraft commander, and he's the guy in charge. Roger that. So I was a new aircraft commander. I was giving a guy his first flight in the squadron. He had just gotten to the squadron. We went out there, started up. This was at Mayport, Florida, right near Jacksonville, Florida. And um, I had heard a noise. And so I shut down called the maintenance. They sent the troubleshooters out, started up again. And the troubleshooter, who was a pretty experienced guy, he said, yeah, he didn't hear anything unusual. And me being a new guy, uh, I had heard it again, but I figured, okay, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he knows, and, right? Correct. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to cancel the flight. So we left. And 20 minutes later, uh, I was in the left seat. My, my co-pilot was in the right. He was flying. We were in the pattern about at the 90-degree position at about 200 feet. 
and there was a large bang. I grabbed the controls, wasn't really sure what was going on. All I did see, though, in, in helicopters, NR, which is your rotor speed, is life. You can have engine problems. You can have hydraulic problems. You can have any problem, fire, whatever. But if you lose NR, you're going down because that's what's keeping the rotors are spinning at. Enough that's your speed. wing. That's your so, lift. Yeah. yeah, that's your lift. So I started to, they were, we were coming over a hangar that was being built. Uh, had to get over that. By the time I got to the other side, I was entering an auto, auto rotation. And what that is, is you lower the collective, which controls the pitch on the blades. The blades go to flat pitch and the reverse airflow coming through the rotor system as you're going down keeps the rotors spinning. Okay. And then you basically are supposed to keep your airspeed up so that you can then do a flare and trade airspeed for altitude and, and, and slow your descent. And then at the very bottom, you pull the collective and that puts the pitch on the blades and that cushions your landing for the last 10 or 15 feet. So it's kind of a ballet there of entering into the auto, going to flat pitch. You want to keep your airspeed up. Then you pull the nose up to trade that airspeed and slow your descent. And then you push the nose over at the very end and pull up on the collective. And that takes the pitch on. And in my case, when I got, I was, you're, you're typically trying to do autos from around 500 feet. So I was already way low to begin with. I had pulled some power to get over the hangar, got on the other side, and I was coming down and the right wing went down and I corrected with the cyclic and nothing happened. And the reason why nothing happened was because the NR was too slow at that point. So the rotor did not act correctly because the, the, it was too slow. And by that time it was time to pull power. And I, you know, pulled as hard as I could on the collective and we hit really hard, but luckily we hit really flat and we slid along the ground. And at the end we rolled over all the rotors, debris, everything, you know, was going everywhere. I was on the side that was down. And by the time I figured out I was still alive, I started to climb out. My co-pilot, he was gone. Uh, <laughs> and the air crewman, he was gone. I, I See ya. Yeah. I Let's know my, how it works out for you, boss. <laughs> well, I used to kid that he left his boot mark on my face. So uh, I poked my head out of the helicopter and they were standing there. I don't know what they were thinking, but they were standing there and, and I climbed out and we were about 75 yards from our squadron hangar. Oh and gosh. we were the only squadron on the base. Uh, Mayport was a small field at that time. And the entire squadron was running towards me. It looked like a Japanese horror movie. And my flight suit was, was fuel soaked. We, were, we had a, fuel, <laughs> oh, a full bag of fuel. Um, Anyone got a match? <laughs> we didn't have any fire. 
And the first guy in front is the CEO and he runs up to me and he says, what happened? (laughs) And I I didn't know what happened. Wait a minute. Don't I have the right to remain silent? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) what happened? You know, know, it just long story short, they thought I had a, they took us to medical. They thought I had a broken neck. Oh my. Um, so they strapped me into an ambulance, sent me downtown. After about an hour or so, a doc from the hospital there came in and said, hey, did you ever play football? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, that's just normal degeneration. You can go home. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> so believe it or not, that night, my, my wife and I went to a squadron party. I'm still amazed that I was able to compartmentalize that. I could never do it now being the mess that I am, but being young back then, I was able to do that. Uh, the next day they had found out that somebody in the intermediate maintenance facility, you know, there's organizational level maintenance. And then the next one is intermediate had left off nine inches of safety wire off six bolts. Oh my gosh. Those bolts backed out of the main transmission and that came apart. And essentially what that meant was the, the engines were no longer connected to the rotor. So, it was so like the safety wire is there for a reason is what you're saying. Yeah. What are the odds? <laughs> yeah. So that, that was like having a wow. dual engine failure. Oh my gosh. <sighs> to be honest with you, I was happy, you know, because it wasn't something that I had screwed up myself. Um, but it taught me a big lesson. And I used to say, it, it changed the way I was as a pilot, um, yeah. you know, being a young, invincible lieutenant, um, you know, that was something that wasn't going to happen to me, even though we had a number of mishaps. Uh, now it did happen to me. And, you know, it changed my cockpit discipline. Uh, it changed the way I prepared for flights. It changed the way that I looked towards maintenance, you know, and what my expectations were from them when I became more senior and, mm-hmm. and those type of things. And I used to say, I wish every young pilot could have a mishap because they would be much better pilots, you know, for the rest of their career. I guess that's why we have simulators, right? Uh, that's right. To be, yeah. to be able to do that, it really did change the way that I was. I always looked at it, believe it or not, as a positive. It's hard to believe, but it, it was actually a positive for me. So the noise you heard and eventually shut down for was probably the, a noise you don't normally hear because the bolts are normally attached to the transmission. Well, at that point, they weren't out, but what I heard <laughs> was loose. What I had heard was a high-frequency vibration. Yeah. And in those days, they did not have vibration analysis equipment. Of course. Today, the helicopters, it's integrated into the helicopters. If they get a high-frequency vibe on something that's spinning, you know, at high RPM, then it's going to pop up on their screen and tell them. Uh, Back in those days, you know, we didn't have it. So if there was something going bad... You didn't know it until yeah. basically it fell apart. Yeah, it was, a, it was a high frequency vibe. But the other lesson for me was 
I took an aircraft that I wasn't necessarily fully comfortable with. Again, that never happened again in my career. The guys that worked for me, I made sure they knew that if they didn't feel comfortable, then they had every right not to complete the flight or go up in the flight. Sure. So that was kind of the H2. After the H2, I went to the, I transitioned to the H60. That was a new aircraft. They had just introduced it into the fleet in the East and West Coast. Great aircraft, new weapons, new computers. I went to training in uh, San Diego, HSL 41, to learn how to be an instructor because I was going to start the RAG, Replacement Air Group, the training Mm -hmm. squadron on the East Coast and come back, uh, which I did. So get this, when I was a RAG instructor as a lieutenant, I essentially had about 50 hours or a little bit more in the aircraft and probably (laughs) less than 25 deck landings. And I was instructing students in everything. That that was a big challenge, but the Navy had no other choice. Was that your first job as an instructor then? That was my yeah first time as an instructor. Okay. And the Navy didn't have a choice because... Sure. The aircraft was so new, all the they fleet squadron guys were still in their fleet squadrons. Yeah. Right. So they had, a, they had kind of this gap where they had to start things up, and we were part of the gap. And, of course, that, that was a challenge, being able to teach a new aircraft. And I didn't have a 1,000 hours in it like most people would have. Sure. GT, what, what year was that that you transitioned to the H-60? That was in '86. Okay, so you're new at that. What was your process to become a RAG instructor? Was there a good syllabus for that or whatever? Because I guess the the question I'm leading up to is, did they teach you to always expect the unexpected? Expect your student to try to kill you. Yeah, the IUT part of it was minimal. Um, Again, I I was just focused on trying to figure out the new aircraft because it was so new. That that was... Mm -hmm you know, trying to get myself comfortable in the aircraft, trying to learn what students were going to do. That came a little bit later. Probably one of the scariest things that happened to me is I was taking a student to the boat, really dark night to a FFG, the flight decks at 30 feet over the water. Yeah. What night isn't dark, right? Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) When there's student, there's no moon. It's a, you know, it's a new moon when you get students on board, no full moon for you. Oh yeah. So we were going to the boat, it was dark, and there was another aircraft in the pad, and he was on the deck, and so we weren't going to be able to land on that approach. So at a half a mile and 200 feet, I told the student to wave off, and the next thing I know, he lost control of the aircraft somehow. I'm not even sure how, (laughs) but by the time I recovered it, I was at 500 feet zero airspeed facing 180 degrees in the other direction in a hover and wow wow and and i was screaming terrifying i was yelling at this guy i still don't know to this day what he did but he had two more landings that he had to get for his qual so i landed and kicked him out of the aircraft he's lucky i didn't kick him out in flight I told my buddy, I said over the radio, I'm like, you need to get him his last two landings. Yeah. And there's dead silence. Finally, he comes back and goes, Roger that. 
And then when we came back, he's like, you know, when you told me I needed to get his last two landings, I couldn't understand why. And then when he did his first landing, then I realized why. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that, that, that was probably one of the scariest things that to this day I remember like it was yesterday. So I went to the FRS as an instructor, and then I went to my C. I, I, I helped start up as a plank owner, some other squadrons. Then I, I left, and I went to uh, be an aide up in Nav Air in D.C., came back, did my department head tour, ONC tour. After that, I screened for command and was the CEO of HSL 44, that's where I got the call sign, the great Tuntini GT. <laughs> I like that call sign, bro. I like awesome. that call sign. Obviously, in homage to the great Santini, I think probably relatively notorious for being a stickler for NATOP. I think I sent you my rules for flying. I tried to impress upon guys. Naval aviation is a lot of fun, and it's all jokes and things like that. But there's some serious business there, especially when things are going bad or sometimes people make really bad decisions that put them in bad places. Things we used to always discuss in our NATOPs, we'd always say things like, you can't do this unless it's operational necessity. And we would always have this discussion of what is operational necessity? Who can okay operational necessity? Can a pilot just say, I'm going to do this and violate NATOPS because it's operational necessity? And so, for example, one of the things that we're not allowed to do is transfer passengers at night unless it's operational necessity. And if you're out there in the battle group, you know, and you're an 04 and your CEO of the ship is an 06 and says, hey, you need to get this guy over the carrier so he can go to the planning meeting for tomorrow and it's night. And he says, I want you to take him and you're an 04 and you're like, I can't do that. Some guys will say, well, that's operational necessity. And then they will violate that. That's right. kind of a, uh, an easy one. It goes on to, to other things, but. Well, and that's, that's one of your rules. Let me, let me interrupt with that. And I'll, I'll publish all of them with the, uh, with the post. When we put this up on, uh, online, you can go to, so there I was at us and look at this post and get the, uh, uh, look at this episode number and then look at uh, at the rules. I'll have them all up there. You have there, that's your uh, rule 11, was operational necessity rarely, if ever, presents itself during peacetime. Um, he, there are uh, a total of uh, 18 rules he sent us, and I'll, I'll read some more of them as, uh, as we get they're through awesome. the show. But They're awesome rules. They are awesome. They're rules to, to literally, they are rules to live by. Yes, so, to keep living by. Yes. I would ask guys questions on their NATOPs and I think I told you one story I have in the book. I was out on a flight with a, a lieutenant and a senior air crewman, and we were doing practice uh, search and rescue where we were going to a 60-foot hover over the water at night and practice our procedures. And I was flying, and I was at 60 feet. And as the CO, I was then beginning to purposely slowly lower myself from 60 feet. And then I was at 50 and then I was at 40. Nobody's saying anything. Okay. Now you guys are Harrier guys. So you don't have anybody to say anything, but 
in crewed aircraft, one of the big things is crew coordination. I know that you're, you guys fly for the majors. Right. So you know right. that in the old days, the co-pilot was just shut up and do what I tell you. And now, <laughs> you know, you're right. not supposed to set that culture. But this is one of the things that I tried to bring out in, in people that I flew with was here I am going lower and lower. Finally, I'm at 10 feet. Yeah, and I when, when somebody got to speak up for crying out loud, right? Well, that's what I said. Is anybody going to say anything? Or are we just going to crash here? <laughs> and, you know, of course, I pull it up and it's dead silent. And these two guys were great guys, but they were like, you're the CEO. We thought you knew what you were doing. And I'm oh like, my gosh, don't ever think anyone knows what they're doing, right. especially the right. CEO. Especially you know, the CEO of the EXO for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and those are the type of things that I would try to hammer home to people by doing that type of thing. That's awesome. That's great training. And you know what? Yeah. Uh, are, first of all, I'm not shocked that uh, no one said a word because there are, you know, it's written in blood how many times nobody said a word because it's the skipper. He knows what he's doing, right? Yeah. He do not want to, you know. <laughs> Don't want to correct him and wind up, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting a bad fitness report. This is oh, God forbid. Yeah. Well, that was my big test for a guy. The first quality you get in a helicopter is a helicopter second pilot. And that means that if you have an aircraft commander and a second pilot, you can do all the missions. So that's the first qual that you get. And so when I was the CO, you know, my big thing was, did I think this guy had enough gonads to grab the controls from the senior pilot if they right. were an extremist? And so, you know, some squadrons had boards and stuff. My thing was just simple. Send him in to me when he's ready. I would feel him out. And if I felt like he was good to go, then he would get his qual. So one time the OPSO sends a guy in. And he sits down and I'm like, hey, why do you think you're ready to be an H2P? And he goes, well, I've done my training, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, go speak to the OPSO. You're not ready. So he leaves, goes in with the OPSO and the OPSO is like, did you tell him this, this and this? And he's like, well, I tried to. but So he comes back in, knocks on the door. I'm like, OK, so tell me why. And he's yeah. like, well, you know, I did. You know, he's getting like. I know the aircraft. I'm like, no, get go, go, go back. So he goes, get back. Out, yes. <laughs> goes back out. this, yeah, this time he comes back and he raps on the door just harder than hell. Uh, and I'm like, enter. And he comes in and he walks up to my desk and he slams his fist down. And he goes, skipper, there's an aircraft in the hot pits. I'll take you in it right now and show you I'm ready to be a second pilot. <laughs> and I'm like, now you're a second pilot. You Let's go. go. Right. <laughs> right. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It is awesome. And, you know, that's, that's the awesome. thing that's interesting. And, and, Fig, I know you're a captain and a Czech airman at your airline. And, and uh, that's one of the things we stress at ours is you are just as responsible. If you're not the guy flying, you're just as responsible for the safe landing of the airplane. If you're the first officer in the captain's line, you are just as responsible for the safe That's landing right. of the airplane. You're, the, you're right. responsible for the outcome. Don't sit there and let a guy kill you. One of our big mishap rates in, in the HSL community is 
night descents over water. We would fly around at 500 feet, 200 feet, depending, typically using radar, FLIR, things like that. But at some point, we may have to go down lower if they really want to get a VID, visual ID, on a DAO, you know, which are those wooden boats in the Gulf that carry all sorts of bad guys on them and weapons and stuff. And I mean, you could get down to 50 feet or less. And we had a lot of people fly into the water. One of the things that I instituted was first, I put an SOP of nobody goes below 200 feet. That, that's our hard deck. Most of our aircraft didn't have FLIR, which is the infrared device mm-hmm. to be able yeah, to see forward looking infrared. And, you know, my thing was, if you don't have a FLIR, you're not going to put yourself in danger because you don't have the right equipment. So you stay up at 200 feet. Then the other thing was we put in a night descent checklist because it turned out everybody was doing night descents differently. What was their language for how they were, you know? Yeah. So you wanted everybody on the same sheet of music. Yeah. So we wanted to standardize what's the warning altitude, how far in advance, how do you notify people? Because again, we got two other people in the crew. We should never fly in the water accidentally because one guy screwed up, right? Right. The two other guys should be able to stop them. And that wasn't happening. And so we tried to put some things into effect. Uh, They got adopted, some of them by NATOP. So I think our our raids have become a lot better. But we did have a time where we we were losing a number of aircraft and they were just plain flying it into the water. I've got several questions, and I'm going to meter them in real slow. There you go. You referenced the pattern, and I'm, I don't want to make any assumptions. So is when you're, at, when you're flying that uh, the pattern to the boat, your boat, with a small flight deck on the back of the ship, are you flying the same kind of pattern that we would normally fly like in an aircraft carrier? To, or Explain what that pattern looks like when you're coming in the land. So... Our pattern, we used to have a glide slope pattern, which was 400 feet at 1.2 miles, and it took you down at about 500 feet per minute. Okay. We actually had a glide slope indicator, gyro stabilized, which sometimes worked. (laughs) Then we had an alternate approach, which was to come in at 200 feet and basically intercept the glide slope from there. And this was before night vision goggles. So okay. it, was all, it was all on instrument. Now they're on night vision goggles, and they just use the 200-foot. So coming to land on the aircraft carrier, you know, relatively much easier than coming to the back of the destroyer at night. Yeah. But so, you, so, you, so like for us, we, we would fly the same pattern that we would fly at a fixed runway. For at the aircraft carrier, you come right, in the yeah. break, yeah. you know, and the same kind of thing. And then we would do the exact same pattern uh, at the uh, at the ship when we were landing in the Harrier, unless it was at night, right? Repeat. Yeah, so yeah exactly. Slightly different, but, which is one of his rules: do develop standard practices, do things the same way. Yeah. When you get rushed, you'll still do them the same. Don't get rushed. So, so the next question was: you kind of alluded to it was NVGs. Uh, when when did you guys start using NVGs, night vision goggles? So we started, I, when I was the RAG CEO, we started training on that. There was a lot of institutional reluctance from more senior people in the community that didn't think we needed night vision goggles, that didn't understand the value of them. 
and me as the rag CEO, I had flown a few flights on them and was like, this is unbelievable. How can we not have these? Right. And from that time on, they slowly, you know, we had to get the cockpits changed for MVG compatible lighting. So there was some equipment issues. So during my time, when I was going to the boat, we never had NVGs. Today, they don't do boat landings without NVGs. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I, so I, um, all my NVG time is in the C-130 and, you know, we, when we deployed to combat, most of our flying was at night on NVGs. And I, I can't imagine landing a helicopter on the back of a ship at night without NVGs. I just, I just can't imagine how that works. That's terrifying. I, I, it's terrifying for me to even think about that. Again, my son is a helicopter pilot, flies the 60. He's an instructor and he is taking guys to the boat and, you know, they're going on NVGs. It's not as big a deal as with us because that was a very strenuous thing for us to go through because it was just hard. You know what I mean? The lighting was not good right. uh, and you were... Well, things are pretty much now, I'm sure. instruments. The visual cues weren't there until you got right up to the deck. And guys flew it into the water going to the ship at night, you know, because you're going down to 30 feet on a small deck and it just wasn't easy. Uh, MVGs made a big deal. My third question that I, I've been looking at my notes uh, while you were talking did you, did you deploy as a HSL pilot during the first Gulf War? I didn't deploy because I was on shore duty. Okay. What about um, after 9-11? 9-11, I was too old, but I was in the Pentagon. I okay. sent you a picture of my office. Yeah. 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 You, you were in the, in the I fourth was ring, actually, right? I was in the, yeah, the fourth ring. It was the uh, N-98 where all of the Navy and Marine Corps aviation for the Department of the Navy is, and the plane came in underneath uh luckily we were on the fifth floor but it was right below us uh the interesting thing about that was i that window that i had sent you the picture of i actually saw the fireball come up in front of my window and it basically knocked me out of my seat on the fifth floor because it was below us good lord and when we egressed we egressed into the middle of the pentagon the center courtyard okay and I walked out there, and most people don't believe me, but I swear to God, I picked up a piece of aluminum honeycomb that was probably about 16 inches long and five inches wide. It was clearly from the wing of an aircraft. Okay? Yeah. Now, at that time, we didn't know that a plane had hit us. You know what I mean? We, uh, we, right, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you didn't know. We just thought it was an explosion. Uh, I just threw it on the ground. I wish I had kept it, you know, just for, yeah. for historical purposes. But that's how far that, that debris, you know, when it hit on the E-ring, it actually, a piece of debris was in the center courtyard. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Wow. Talk about the confusion of the moment. Uh, you know, you, uh, GT, you, you had a very, uh, 
fulfilling and colorful career. So let, let me ask you this. You wrote a book and in your book, this fictional character, it sounds like this is somebody you probably mentored and you turn this person into a fictional character, but somebody like you who has a severe leadership experience and obviously is an outstanding leader, understands what motivates people and 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 what makes people want to follow you. So if you could think of one thing, one thing that inspired you or something you think about, maybe you think maybe I should have done something different or done something better or wish I would have made a different decision for this person or somebody that influenced you as you were gaining all your experience in the Navy? Well, I think I would answer that by the fact that I was lucky enough to be a squadron CO of a, of a fleet squadron. And then I was selected to be the CO of the training squadron. So I was in one of the unique circumstances where I got to command two squadrons. That's not everybody, awesome. not everybody in the Navy does that. Even admirals, you know, they get one oh, squadron, right. and they may be the CEO of a ship, but I got to go to a second squadron and that gave me the opportunity to say, okay, what is it that I can do better? The single biggest thing that I tried to do better and my JOs will probably see this on Facebook and say that, that I didn't, I wasn't good at it, but the, the fact is, is <laughs> the, the single biggest I thing is I in, had learned basically over time and through that first squadron that I needed to keep my mouth shut and listen to what people were telling me when they were telling me things, not necessarily telling me how to do things, but if I was asking a question rather than getting and jumping on them with the next question, I needed to listen to their response and I needed to be more silent. Now, like I said, my JOs will all probably say that I did not do good at it, but I intentionally tried to force myself to do that because I realized something that I saw many times when I was in the Pentagon, I would be given a brief and a senior officer would interrupt me and I was trying to get to that point. And <laughs> right. yeah, we lost control of the whole thing. But I saw that there were a few very senior guys that didn't do that. They sat there very silent. And then, you know, they let you get through your thing. And the conversation was a lot better. So I think that's what I tried to do on the second time around was to give people the chance to tell their story to explain nice and yeah. and i think that that worked out a lot better at least that's what i tried to do again if, that they're there for a reason it isn't their first day on the job they they might have some intelligence on uh, on the subject a, and, and you know what a what a gift that was for you yeah. uh you know second time around having learned uh, some probably v really very valuable valuable lessons in your first command and 
get to do it again and get to do it better. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Nice. Yeah, that, indeed. I think that was the, the biggest takeaway. The second time around was it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and I think that that people that are experienced, I'm sure you guys are, you know, very experienced flyers in the majors. And if you think that way, it's what you learn after you know it all. If you keep yourself up open to learning, you are going to learn if you don't then then you won't yeah well you can't stop that's the thing if you think if you think you're all that and you know it all you're probably the dangerous most dangerous guy in the room exactly amen (laughs) or the most dangerous guy in the cockpit yeah yeah Hey, we're running a little over an hour right now. There's another story that uh, you had mentioned at one point that I wanted to ask you about. You wound up participating in uh, more than one, but there was one particular search and rescue mission that got my attention. Uh, could you tell us about that? Uh, uh, this is a, a no-shitter. <laughs> yeah. When I was a FRS instructor, uh, RAG instructor, lieutenant, I was flying a uh, flight with a was actually a lieutenant commander who was a student and we were off of Jacksonville, Florida. And we got called by the tower that there was a small boat in distress and they needed help. So we got the coordinates started to head out to that location. And we had our radar, we had our air crewmen in the back and we weren't seeing anything. So we started to begin to search that area and lo and behold, a pencil flare goes up. And we're like, oh, that must be something that we need to go check out. So there they are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we flew over, and uh, there's some lights in the water. We didn't see a boat, but there were certainly lights and things. So we basically began the preparations of putting a guy in the water and lowering him in the hoist. We put a crewman in the water. We started bringing up. Uh, one of the people that was in the water that was being rescued. And my crewman in the back says to me, I don't think these guys are off a boat. They're wearing flight suits and helmets. (laughs) They look like us. Yeah. (laughs) And we're like, what do you mean they're wearing flight suits? Well, anyway, we picked up two other guys for a total of three. They were all air crew. And we flew back to the base. They got, you know, taken a medical. So when it all got sorted out, what happened was when the tower had called us to look, there was another aircraft from another squadron that had heard them ask us to look on Tower Freak. And whenever there's a search and rescue in helicopters, everybody wants to be the guy that gets the search and rescue. So, <laughs> oh, shit. So they had heard it. And they had put the coordinates in and they were trying to get out there in front of us, essentially. And somewhere in that time period, they began a night descent over water. And because they were basically rushing, they flew into the water in a night descent. And oh my gosh. Yeah. The, the, the helicopter crashed. Again, the 60, which is a black hole ver- uh, variant, tough helicopter they flew it into the water all three of them got out and we ended up rescuing them of course we didn't know we were they actually pulled that aircraft out of the water salvaged it and 
it was in our hangar and the nose of the aircraft, you know, you have the nose and then the windshield. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the windshield and the nose were totally ripped off the aircraft. And the first thing that you could touch on the aircraft, the, the aircraft was relatively intact except for that, was the two pilot seats. Um, <laughs> there was no dashboard, no cockpit. It, it looked like a chariot, you know. <laughs> Oh and my gosh. in the end, that was probably lucky because the guy who egressed from it, he said that they were in a descent and he, he said the first thing that he, you know, remembered seeing was why is there water in the cockpit? That's how <laughs> disoriented they were. Hey, what's that? What's that mount go doing up here in the clouds? When yep. he released his, his belt, he basically just, floated free oh and gosh. wasn't in the wreckage so luckily that that happened but that that was a pretty strange rescue there we didn't realize they were air crew in the water that's crazy that, yeah that is nuts so i have to ask were the boaters rescued or do you turns know? out were there so boaters? that's a good question turns out there was never a boat okay and when I became CEO of the squadron, we, we would have to stand search and rescue standby duty. Okay. And I'll tell you what, I, if, if we ever got called, they had to go through me because my thing was we're not running out there for some BS call unless there's some sort of verification that something is actually going on. Because one of the things that led to that was the procedures for the search and rescue were not well codified. And so it was kind of a Wild West type thing. Anybody could go do it. Sure. And really, that's not the way it should be. Later on, we, we codified them and only particular people that could be called to do that that were ready to go do it. Well, I can imagine. Yeah, you feel like, yeah, I've got the airframe. I can go do it. I can go find somebody. But uh, th yeah, like anything else, that's a dangerous mission that probably needs some real procedures and training behind it to, uh, yeah. to keep from happening uh, exactly what happened to that other crew. And again, everybody wants to be the person that does a rescue because it's, you know, it's a big deal. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Get your name in the paper. Get a free yeah. steak dinner at the town pump. Oh, wait. Right. No, that's <laughs> exactly. So, um. Awesome. Well, we've uh, we've been going a little bit more than an, uh, about, about an hour and 10 here, it looks like. So I'm going to go ahead and wind this up. And, and first of all, I want to ask you to come back. If you can come back with us, we would love to have you back. Sure. No DT, problem. I, I know there's more stories I need to extract out of you. Absolutely. <laughs> there's good stuff here. I, I, I need to get one of my JOs online so he can sit there and shake his head up and down or, <laughs> or, no, or left right. no, no, he didn't do that. Some sort of verification there because. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, oh that's <laughs> awesome. No, yeah. So anyway, before I, do, before I do that, I'm going to read just a few more of your rules here because these are pretty good ones. Uh, oh, the, oh, I love the first rules. one is uh, the, 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 probably the, the most pithy and poignant. This is a life and death business. Don't die because you were stupid. Right. And yeah, and the correlation to that is don't by not being stupid, know your NATOPS. It will save your life. That, and that's the book by which we operated our aircraft. NATOPS stands for what? Repeat. What's the NATOPS? Naval Aviation for? Training and Operational Procedure Standardization. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. 
pulled that out of a file Thank card you. that was 40 years mm-hmm. old. Uh, th- uh, train hard. Train hard. The real thing is going to be easier if you train hard, right? I mean, that goes to that goes to everybody, whether you're playing football or flying tactical aircraft or whatever it is you do in life. Train hard, and when you do it for real, it's going to be a whole lot a lot easier. Uh, we'll skip down a little bit, but air to conservatism. You know, better to come back and fight another day, which was kind of the correlation, uh, a corollary to General Patton, wasn't it? Uh, it's better to let the other poor bastard die for his country. Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, you talked about this a little bit. Use your crew. If you're thinking and say it, others are probably thinking the same thing. But realize your crew is there. They, they didn't just show up today because they wanted to see what it would be like to ride in a helicopter uh, or ride in a jet or whatever it is you're flying. They've got some experience. They're there for a reason. Don't discount the fact that they can help save your life. Use everybody. Yeah, and I also like you don't crash going up. Right. <laughs> Night descents over water are the most dangerous things we do. Respect them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. You know, that. again, I've listened to your podcasts, and typically, unless there's equipment malfunction, you know, the piloting piece at altitude, obviously, you're flying at 20,000, 30,000 feet. You're not going to hit anything up there. But when you get near the ground or the water, things get different. Oh, yeah in helicopters that especially flying to small decks at night and doing missions over the water that require you to hover and things, you know, it's, you really have to respect that being a junior pilot. Sometimes it's hard to do that, especially today. They've got automatic flight control systems and, you know, uh, NVGs, things that make it easier, but you still have to respect it. Right. Yeah. Cause the ocean, the ocean doesn't care. Yeah. No, neither does the rocks. No, no. The, no. the mountains and the ocean, they don't care. No. They just well, I just you. listened to the podcast about, you know, one of your friends there that had that crash on the uh, the road, you know. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. OB. In the Harrier. And, yep. you know, what an experience that that was. And, and that's your, I, what do you guys call those landings you do on the road? RVL, rolling vertical landing. So you're, yep. you, it's vertical, but you're moving forward so that you don't melt the asphalt. And generally about 30, 35 knots. Yeah, your RVL stuff is the same stuff that we do doing hover and night, you know, rescues, things like that. It's, I think, very similar mm-hmm. in, you know, the risks and, and things that are going on. Yeah, absolutely. It, Great it, stuff, Great stuff, buddy. Absolutely. So one thing I will say is thank you for opening your door to the helicopter community. Hey, you know, we all wear the same wings. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know what? You're just, you've opened the door now for other helicopter yes. pilots to want yeah. to come on, tell stories. Yep. And thank you for that. Uh, because, uh, you know, just like repeat myself, you know, we all have brothers that are helicopter pilots and you are one of them. And we're all aviators. And these stories uh, are, are not different than any, in anybody else's stories. They're, they're awesome. So thank you for sharing. Right. They had to be down for posterity, if nothing else. Uh, <laughs> but, right. Yeah. But well, the good news guys, is. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you. You both have 
radio voices. If you we have, have faces for radio, he said face. Jobs. <laughs> you know, what, what was that uh, radio show with the two uh, DJs there in the morning, the morning zoo or whatever? Oh. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 if you ever have to give up your airline gig, you guys can, you, 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 you know. got another, you, you got the voice. <laughs> You know what's funny is is I I think Repeat's got the voice. He's got the radio voice. I I I think when I listen to myself, I think I just sound like a buffoon. But thank you for that compliment anyway. Indeed, thanks very much, and thank you for your service, sir. Thank yes, sir. you for, thank your, you for your service. For your sir. service. Yeah, much appreciated. And the last thing I'll say is, so the toast that I've come up with over many years in the in the uh, Navy. And looking back on it now, after many years, is Hoka Hay. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is. Do you know? No. So Hoka Hay is a the war cry of the Sioux Indians, supposedly said by Geron, uh, not Geronimo, Crazy Horse, and it means today is a good day to die, or. Let's roll. That, that's what they said when they were sitting okay. on, hey. on top of the hill waiting to go down and, and, and do their deal. So, hoka hey to hoka you guys. Hey. Hoka hey. hey. Thanks, GT. Thank you. With that, I'm going to take this opportunity to wrap it up. As Fig mentioned, we are going to have more helicopter pilots on. We actually have one in the queue for an upcoming show. His call sign is Sticks. And he was a Coast Guard pilot, so he's got a couple search and rescue stories uh, of his own that I know he's going to share with us. And he was kind enough to do for us a new logo for our website. If you look carefully in that logo, Fig mentioned it earlier in this show, um, it goes back to a Far Side cartoon in the 1980s where one pilot looks at the other and goes, hey, what's that mountain goat doing way up here in these clouds? So if you look carefully at our logo, you'll see the almost inverted attitude indicator and a goat that is level with that attitude indi- indicator reflecting in the pilot's visor. So, <laughs> so uh, a lot of creativity and effort to put that new logo together. Uh, thank you, Sticks. God bless you and look forward yeah, to having you, you on the show. Yeah. Indeed. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we do have a glossary page up on so there I was us. So if we mentioned a term that you didn't hear or didn't understand, I should say, go and look for it there. It probably will be there. If it's not, write to us and tell us to put it up there and we'll get it in the glossary page and, and explain it. I want to take a minute also to thank our sponsor, robinsbirdbraindesigns.com. Reach out to her for uh for some Christmas gifts. If you're trying to look for a custom Christmas gift for somebody who uh, you want to show them, you put a little thought and effort into getting them something that they don't already have. Robinsburnbraindesigns.com. She can do more than just the coasters, but our favorite is the coasters with either a squadron logo or some flight instruments in your tail number, something along those lines on there. The VMA 223 logo, by the way, is superb on a coaster. If you don't have any idea what to put on there, it's a good one. Absolutely. The boxing <laughs> the bulldog with boxing gloves and angels it's wings drawn like Walt by Walt Disney. Yeah. Right? Come on. Who doesn't like Walt Disney's Absolutely. cartoons? Yeah. So thanks also to Dave Hamilton over at the Mac Geek Gab. He hosts that podcast, which is a great tech podcast. You can find them at mgg.fm or MacGeekGab.com. Go check out American Quest by our guest tonight, GT. It's available on Amazon.com. 
And please keep in your prayers and thoughts the crews of that B-17 Flying Fortress and the uh, P-63 King Cobra that crashed today in Dallas. That's a terrible thing, but it is, as you mentioned, it's a de- this is a deadly business. It's a very serious business. So for those of you that are flyers, be careful out there. For those of you that are not, we hope you enjoy these stories. We appreciate that you're spending time listening to us when you have all 3 million other shows to listen to. The fact that you're listening to us is humbling and honoring. We would appreciate it if you would continue to do what you've been doing, which is share it. We are up to many thousands of, of listeners now, and we are humbled by that. Believe me, this is cool. It's way cool. In the meantime, we'll see you next week. Stay safe, man. Check six. Now it was too much to hope I could get it to dangle Well the best I could do was a 90 degree angle And hookshot that son of a bitch like Dr. J Now I never really thought about what was ensuing Until I realized I couldn't see what the fuck I This helicopter is taking off! No! Stop the hovering!